0: We're calling our series uh, The Spirit Empowered Mission. Acts, we are studying it verse, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We will take a break in the spring around Easter to do a short sermon series on the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross. And then we'll celebrate Good Friday here, Friday evening, and uh, Easter, of course, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Christmas is gone for me. I'm already thinking Easter, okay? I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just the life of, of, of a preacher, I guess. I don't know, but um, Merry Christmas. I know it's a little belated, but uh, so we're, we're looking forward to the spring and then again to uh, Easter celebration. But right now we're studying the book of Acts. We'll see how far we get uh, through until uh, the summer comes and then we'll pick it up in the fall. And uh, we're in chapter eight, as I said, and we're chapter eight is a very strategic, uh, a very important uh, place in the life of this young church in Jerusalem. Jesus said to his followers, if you've been following so far, uh, after he was died, after he rose, after he died, after he rose, and before he sent it to the Father, that they must wait and stay in Jerusalem until they are baptized <coughs> with the promised Holy Spirit. But once he comes and, and, and seals them and fills them, they will go out in his power, in God's power, to be witnesses of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of King Jesus. And as people come to faith, the Bible tells us that we are to make disciples and then baptize them and then teach them all the things that Jesus commanded them. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says they're gonna, it's going to start, this witnessing is going to start in Jerusalem, then move into Judea and Samaria, and then he tells them go to the rest of the world, to all the earth. But until chapter 8, the focus has been on Jerusalem. But something profoundly new is about to occur here in the 8th chapter. And what we're going to see is this the beginning of this fulfillment, this mandate that Jesus has given to the apostles and to the church to take the gospel into the whole world. In the words of Warren Worsby, he writes, It's time had come and the church was on the move. The salt was now leaving the Jerusalem salt shaker to be spread over all Judea and Samaria just as the Lord had commanded. Let, let, me, let me set the stage short, in a short minute here. The church has grown tremendously. As you can imagine, there's problems. Problems have occurred. That, you know, uh, uh, w- within this growing church in Jerusalem, Jesus said he will build his church. He never said it would be easy. He never said it would be without, without persecution. In fact, he said, plan on it. It's going to happen. And last week, if you were here last Sunday, um, we saw the worst persecution up to that point that the church has ever faced. And although the religious leaders of that day in Jerusalem had, in the past, arrested the apostles, even gave them a beating... Whipped them and, and, and flogged them. It wasn't until chapter 7, a man by the name of Stephen, chosen by the church to serve tables, man full of the spirit, man full of faith, a godly man, became the first post-resurrection martyr. After being by the religious establishments in chapter 7, the power broke as the big shot. Stephen thought it would be a good idea to to show them that just because they had the promised land, just because they had the law of Moses, just because the temple was in Jerusalem, the place where the Shekinah, the presence of God, dwelt, that they were still filled with all kinds of anger, hatred, fear, pride, and cruelty, and they were a bunch of hard headed stiff-necked people. That went over really well. As if grinding of their teeth in anger was not enough, he goes on to tell them that they were... That He goes on to tell them that, they, they, that he sees the Messiah, if you remember in chapter 7, judge Jesus, the one they murdered, standing as the advocate in the cosmic courtroom, waiting for his arrival and reminding them that Jesus is the Son of God. From Daniel's prophecy, the one who has all power, all dominion, all authority, sharing in the very fundamental attributes of the one true and living Yahweh. In fact, if you look at Daniel 7, the Son of Man is actually worshipped. Now any reasonable Jew, for that matter, all major religions teach God alone ought to be worshipped. To worship anything, worship to anyone else, to bow your knee to anyone else is a matter of idolatry. Yet Jesus, because he is God, the Son, is worshipped. And the religious leaders in chapter 7 in the Sanhedrin that Stephen is confronting with this truth know what he's saying. In fact, they murdered Jesus for claiming to be one with the Father. a God, equal, essence of who God is. God incarnate. And they killed him. And, and, and Stephen reminds them and they take him out back and they murder him too. Now, in order to kill someone in that day or the way in which they did, it was stoning to death It took a lot of energy. So when they went out back and they were going to stone Stephen, they took off their outer garments and they would lay it at the feet of someone that they trusted, someone that they knew, someone that approved of their killing. And our text tells us in chapter 7, verse 58, it was a young man by the name of Saul. In this first post-resurrection murder, it was Saul. The one whose name would be changed to the Apostle Paul. The church planner, the pastor, the one who said to live is Christ, to die is gain. And if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, it says that it was the very first time that great persecution arose. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, at Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions. Judea. Samaria, except the apostles. Some have said, maybe in your commentary, maybe in the bottom of your Bible, that, that God sent, God allowed, God pushed this persecution into place because the disciples, the apostles, were lazy or they were disobedient. They were, they were finding their comforts in Jerusalem. They didn't really want to listen and obey Jesus who said, go into all the world. They wanted to stay in Jerusalem and have their own little you know, comfort zone. They were, they were comfortable there. I'll tell you that's based on speculation, not revelation. The scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. I don't know. But what is true in our text, and we'll see today, is that God's purpose allowing this persecution into the church was for the spread of the gospel. A man by the name, I think it was Alexander White, he's a Scottish pastor of the 19th and 20th century, who said that a correct assessment of Stephen was that he was actually greater than Peter, James, and John because of his usefulness Stephen had in the church because of his bold witness and how God used his death to spread the gospel. Now, whether you agree or not with that statement, that's up to you. But the point is, the point uh, he's trying to make is that Stephen's death and the severe persecution that ensued was used of God as a tool of spreading the gospel out of Jerusalem and into the world. And that's where we pick up our story, right where we left off, chapter 8, verse 1. We'll see this teaching under three headings. The first is the great persecution. The second is the gospel intention. And the final one is the grand revelation. So that's what we're looking at. Look, look at the great persecution with me. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 again. I have the verses up there. Turn in your Bibles, will be great. And Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution. Not a persecution, a great persecution. First time the word persecution is used as a noun. It's it's showing that the church is is truly coming against a a persecution in a a, a mighty way, in a great way. Against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison We're going to look at Paul we're going to look at Paul in the detail when we get to chapter 9 but let's just say one thing about Paul right now he's fired up He's fired up for God so he thinks You can be fired up. You can be convicted. You can have strong convictions and be strongly and wrongly beliefs. You can have strong and wrong beliefs. Paul had great conviction. Unfortunately, he was wrong. Persecuting those heretics. You can hear him now. Giving them what they deserve. Death. Prison. He would later write, Brothers, my heart desire and prayers to God for them that they would be saved. He's talking about the Jewish people, the ones that he's persecuting, the nation in which he belongs to. For I bear them witness, just like me, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking establishing their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, which is in Christ Jesus. Christianity, what was going on was Christianity was no longer becoming just this sect within Judaism. Christianity now, as we'll see later in the, in the book, is becoming much more than that. Something entirely different, something brand new. In fact, in all likelihood, this first persecution probably broke out, and many commentators agree with this, that, that, against the Hellenistic wing of, of the church. In other words, the Jewish-speaking Christian Jews. Excuse me, the Greek-speaking, my bad. The Greek-speaking Christian Jews. That's why the apostles stayed behind and the Hellenists were were scattered. Stephen was a Hellenist. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. So, courageous, probably Hellenistic Jews are burying Stephen, lamenting over him, trying to get out of town as fast as possible. Saul... Is breaking into houses. Think about that. Don't let's just be the words in the text. He's kicking your door down. Going into your home. And taking you as a prisoner. That's what it says. It's unfortunate that we live in a world like that. It should be no surprise that we are called as witness of Jesus. They persecuted him. They murdered him. Uh, You know, this, of course, this, you know, kind of flies in the face of some of evangelism in America that says, you know, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, (laughs) love Jesus, confess your sins, and you'll go to heaven. There's no mention of the time between confessing Jesus as Lord, the time you go to heaven, you know, that whole space that's called life, you know, (laughs) you know, the whole part that you're living. Times when you're afraid, times when you're depressed, time when you're stressed out, times when you are hated by people that won't include you and they disrespect you, or when you don't get the job promotion, or people lie about you, or they misrepresent you and your beliefs. It's unfortunate we hear that out of faith. Come to Jesus if you're poor. He'll give you so much. You know, come to Jesus if you're sick. He wants to heal you so you can be, you know, have, have healing. Whatever you want, whatever you need, come to Jesus. Actually sit up on his lap, and he'll tell you how good you've been and, and how much you deserve stuff. And, and, you know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He sees you when you're afraid, you know. He even knows when you've been bad or good, so certainly be good for goodness sake. But you know what happens when we sell that crap? Yeah, I said crap. People have a false perception of God and the gospel. And then uh, tragedy strikes. Tragedy strikes. Persecution comes. They get frustrated and angry because life gets tough. Life gets hard. Life is arduous and difficult at times. And they walk away. The Bible says all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be, you know the verse? Persecuted. Will be persecuted. Not so much fun stuff. Now, Let's get this out there. In the first century, like here in our text, people were severely persecuted. Saul was dragging people out. They were stoning people to death. Later on, generations will see as the church continues to grow, there were governments, there were nations, there were kings that would burn Christians alive. They would stone them to death. They would throw them in the lion cage. Stuff that does not go on today uh, here in America still goes on in all around the world. get the VOM, uh, Ken and I were talking about that earlier, the voices of the martyrs, and see people being, you know, martyred and and electrocuted and all kinds of stuff for their faith. I was doing just a little little research this week, and, uh, you know, there are those who want to point out that the numbers of people being persecuted throughout our world is not as high as some people would say. And I thought, if it was your mother, your wife, what would it matter? If it was 10,000 or 15,000, just ridiculous. People are being slaughtered. People have always been slaughtered for the gospel. But here in America, at least here in America, at least it's not happening yet. But still we're being persecuted, or at least we should be, to some degree. We're not of this world. We have a message of the gospel that's not very tolerable in our country. People persecute us by, by shaming us, by hating us by refusing to talk to us. People will hate you when you won't lie for them. People will hate you when you won't sleep with them. People hate you when you won't join in their sin. They even call us fanatics and and crazy people who love the Bible and love and worship Jesus. Maybe it's just as simple as some people in your own family want nothing to do with you because of your position, your love, your worship of Jesus. That does hurt. That does constitute persecution. I'm not saying it's the same. I'm not saying that it's exactly as it is in other countries or it was in our text. But let's not dismiss the pain that we feel when we are genuinely persecuted for what we believe. Maybe you're here this morning and you never experienced persecution. So Let me ask you this question. Maybe you're just saying, you know what, that's not happening in my life. Let me ask you this question. Does being a Christian cost you anything? Is anyone ever upset with you because you love Jesus and submit to his word? I know a woman who is maligned, who's, who's, who's uh, talked about, who has is, who is just acted terribly toward for their biblical submissive views in the home. They're ridiculed at work. They're ridiculed. At at, uh, the places of in their community now i'm not saying that we should go out and just try to get everybody mad at us I'm not saying that yeah the pastor said you know what do what you can so that people hate you i'm not saying that right Maybe easy for some of you i'm not sure but If anyone loves you if everyone loves you and no one ever opposed you that may be a problem It may not be that you're so loving maybe it's just that you won't speak the truth in love Again, we're not talking about being a jerk, but maybe we know exactly what people want. We know exactly what to say rather than times we need to stand up for truth, stand up for Jesus, stand up for his word, not shrink back and go along with the crowd. I'm going to say this two or three times today. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I am not telling you that's your life. I'm saying, what is God saying to you? Could that be true of you? Could that be true of me? Stephen had enemies. And if you're a Christian long enough, and consistently enough, you will probably accumulate some as well. The fact is, Christians have enemies who hate them, but it's also true that Christians are to love their enemies. Love their enemies. John Calvin writes in his commentary on 1 Peter concerning the suffering and the persecution of the church. He says that they, the church, might bear submissively their affliction. Peter reminds them then that, that they had long ago foretold by the Spirit, but he, Peter, includes much more than this. In other words, they've been, they've been told a long time ago that they were going to be suffering, they were going to have persecution, but Peter includes much more than this, he says, for he teaches us that the church of Christ has been from the beginning so constituted that the cross has been the way to victory and death a passage to life, and that this had been clearly testified There is therefore no reason why afflictions should above measure depress us as though we were miserable under them, since the Spirit of God pronounces us blessed. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you. Now, if you if you're a martyr, and I'm not saying we should go out and find out how we can be a martyr, I'm simply saying reviling means hated, disrespected, spoken against. That's persecution too. And they persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. See the mindset? It's not on the persecution. It's on what's in front. What's what's guaranteed. What's the future. Reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before them as well. The truth is persecution has been a mark that distinguishes genuine followers of Christ. In many cases... It is purposed of God, it is used of God to propel the church, to move the church, to awaken the church, to live on mission. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul wrote in the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, this passage, listen to this passage, he says this. We, meaning him, And his crew, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus, carrying in death in the body of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, verse 12. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Death is at work in us. We're giving ourselves up, but life has been given to you, Corinthians. The great persecution. The gospel intention. Look at verse 4 with me. Now those who scattered went about preaching the word. The word scattered is the word diaspero, is the word used for spreading seed. It's not the spreading of ashes to disappear. It's the spreading of seed in hopes of growth. That that the seed will land in soil and grow. Right In Acts chapter 11, Luke is talking about the same incident in chapter 4. This is what he writes in Luke chapter 9. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, we'll see how important that is, because not only are they moving north to to, um, uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus, but they land in Antioch, and Antioch becomes more important than Jerusalem as we get into the book of Acts. It is the center of mission to all of Europe huge hate to use that word it reminds me of that dummy on tv but (laughs) huge (laughs) like i won't buy a car there just because of that commercial i don't know what he's trying to prove but anyway so the consequence of the grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying in jerusalem that caused men and women to flee their home to be arrested put in prison is fulfilling now the purposes of god that's so clear in this passage the persecution, the scattering of the Christians led to further increase. And my, my, my brothers and sisters, my friends, that's the gospel principle. Saul tried to kill it, but it rose. He sought to disrupt the church, but it expanded. When Stephen was in front of an angry mob, what did he do? Did he pull out his sword and try to defend himself? Did he gather the rest of the five to 8,000 Christians to defend his rights to free speech? Noah says his face was like an angel. They were trying to kill him. And he said, Father, forgive them. And because he died, the church exploded. He accepted his suffering. He died faithfully. And because the grain of wheat fell to the ground, it blossomed. It grew. The church scattered and began to fulfill the Great Commission to send out missionaries in the world, living on mission, making disciples. So when we pray... And we do, in this church, we do. Lord, let us be good missionaries. Lord, our, our, our statement of purpose why we're here is that we, will, we exist to glorify you by living on mission. By living on mission. How will God answer that prayer? I wonder. How did God answer this prayer? The, the prayer of being not inwardly focused, but outwardly focused. He sent trouble, he sent persecution. You know, the Bible and other places in history and experience tells us that one of the obstacles of mission-focused churches is the very prosperity that belongs to us. Because often the very prosperity can produce in us a dreadful apathy, a time where we want to defend our goods and defend our rights rather than sharing our faith. I'll get back to that as we close. But here's the biblical principle. God calls us in, God sends us out. God saved Stephen, filled him with his Holy Spirit, stood before the Sanhedrin, preached the gospel, and then God gathered the Christians around Stephen as he went into the ground, into the world, and sent them out. Look, verse 4 and verse 5. Philip, where's Philip going? Philip's going to Samaria. The church is scattered, and Philip is going to Samaria. Now, if you know anything about Samaria, let me just give you a short little history lesson here. Samaria was formed between the, the, the Assyrians and the Jewish people. In 721 BC, the Assyrians conquered northern Israel. It was divided by then. They had the north and the south. The north, north was Israel. The south was Judea, uh, uh, Judah. And the Assyrian army conquered Israel. And what they would do in back days, is they would take a lot of people and bring them back to the land of Assyria. And they would drop and deport people along the way. But they would leave a group of people there with their own people. And what happens is the Jews and the Samaritans mingled together, intermarried, and had their own race, their own people, their own community. So they were half-breeds. And in the day of Jesus, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were were half-breeds. In fact, one of the prayers of the rabbis used to be, Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is he who eats swine flesh. So... You see, you know, that may mean nothing to you because you like swine, but to them, that meant a lot. And one of their prayers was also, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. In other words, send them all to hell. I mean, that's, you know, so there wasn't a whole lot of love between the Samaritans and the Jews and the Jews and the Samaritans. But Philip, venture into Samarita, into Samaria, his mission was a radical step towards Stephen's vision that we saw last week of how the gospel is free of nationalistic prejudice. We saw it's not about the land. It's not about the Moses and the law. It's not about your heritage. not about the temple. It's about Jesus, and Jesus loves all people, all tongues, all tribes, all nations. And look at verse 4, the word preaching. I don't, I don't know if you have that word. Uh, now, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Anybody have a new Ameri- uh, NIV? I didn't look it up. NIV? Preach, okay. ESV and the NIV don't capture the word very well. The word preached, the word preach is the word keruso. It's found in verse 5 that Philip was a preacher. He preached the word. We have proclaimed in the ESV. But the word in chapter 8, verse 4, the word preaching, is not that same word. It's not the same word. It is the word evangelizo. It's the evangelized. You may not be a preacher here today. It says they went about having conversations about Jesus. It's where we get our word evangelism. They were gospeling. They were gossiping and gospeling the gospel. Not just those who've been trained in evangelism. All those who were scattered were scattered gospelizing the gospel. That's what happened. Great gospel intentionality as they were persecuted. This text tells us that people were scattered, finding new homes, new jobs, new communities, and they were very intentionally and constantly sharing life with others in the habit of looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus, to encourage, to challenge, to pray, and declare the gospel to others. Tim Chester, in a book called Total Church, Highly recommend it. He says, living ordinary life with gospel intentionality means buying from local shops, frequenting, frequenting a local coffee shop or pub, playing for a local sports team, tipping generously in local restaurants, being the kind of neighbor everyone wants to have as a neighbor, volunteering at a local charity shop, along with couples from the church, doing ordinary things in community. Living ordinary life with gospel intentionality means opening your home to, and sharing your food with others, walking the same route to work at the same time or catching the same train each day, living life with gospel intentionality means we do everything for the sake of the gospel. All those things looking for ways to share Jesus, to declare Jesus. Look at verse 6 we're not going to get too much into this verse, but, but look at the, look at the way in which they declared and shared the gospel. Verse six. And the crowds with one accord, now he's in Samaria, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being, what? Said. What was being said, right? Gospel declared by Philip when they heard him and saw what? The signs that he did, what he was doing. Now he had, he had extraordinary power. Don't, Don't don't get caught up in that because in chapter four, it said they were giving their their goods over for the for the care and the love of people. It's not just it's not just healing power. It's loving people. It's serving people. It's caring for people. They said, look, we hear what he's saying about Jesus. We hear him declaring the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. He came in human form. He died a cruel death. He went into the ground. He rose from the grave. We see that and then we see him. We hear him and then we see him serving others, loving others. That's gospel intentionality. The reality is he's loving and caring for them and their needs. That's a biblical principle we see throughout scripture. Joseph, Daniel, and Nehemiah were men who lived faithfully in pagan and and foreign land. Daniel pressed into civil service in a pagan empire, pagan education, yet he exercised authority in that empire because he maintained faithfulness to God, a love of God, and respect for the people in the country in which he lived. Joseph, you know the story. He too lived in a pagan land, but he made Egypt a better place. He was a man of integrity. They trusted him. Nehemiah, a trusted man who lived as a cupbearer to the king, but still loved God. He loved God so much and he had such integrity. When God said, I want you to go and I want you to go back to Jerusalem and build the walls, the pagan king said, look, I'll pay for the whole trip. Take whatever you need, whatever whatever you want, you go. All of them loved their cities even though their cities did not love God nor seek him. They were able to serve the common good of the people in the city without Sinning against God They loved people They cared about people Even those of different faiths Gospelizing The the, the people were scattered like seed In in a place That they did not want to go They were not liked And they didn't like With great intentionality Remember we are ambassadors for Christ We are ambassadors for Christ As God is making his appeal through us Be reconciled to God That's our message Verse four is telling us that when the Christians were forced out of their home, forced out of their land, forced out of their, their jobs, all the familiar, they went, was when they went, they went with their core identity, as followers of Jesus and the gospel. It was the gospel. It was the gospel. I fear at times that we are. I fear at times that we are so comfortable, and that includes me. That we're trained to come to church and leave and, and then forget that we are the church. Whether we are gathered or whether we are scattered. We don't go to church, we are the church. If you're part of this local body, and this is your regular place of worship, when you leave here, you're still part of the church. You are the church. We gather together on Sunday morning and we scatter throughout the week, living life in community groups, living life in our jobs, wherever we go. We're still the church. These walls don't make us the church. We are the church. We don't go to school. We don't hang out at our neighbors. We don't go with our friends and compartmentalize our life and think that's when I'm with the church and this is when I'm not with the church. And when I'm with the church, I'm on mission. When I'm not with the church, I'm not on mission. Evangelism becomes something we do rather than something we live life in, okay? There's a big difference between the two. And this passage reminds us that we ought to be gospelizing We ought to be sharing our faith. We ought to look for bridges. We ought to build relationships for the purpose of the gospel. Eternal life is at stake. Eternal damnation is at stake. But how was, I I think up to this point, everybody's saying with me, I, I assume, okay, I get that. There is there, there's, there's the great persecution. God uses that. There is this gospel intentionality. There's, there's, Yes, we've been called in by the gospel. We've been saved by the gospel. And, and, and we've been sent out by the gospel. But how? What was the, the propelling force behind this gospelization? Was it simply that Stephen died? Remember our context. There's, you have the government, the people, the land, the law of the land in opposition to the gospel. That's what Stephen faced. They not only rejected him, they murdered him. And they scattered, it scattered the church to Samaria. The apostles stayed in the land. The gospel will continue in Jerusalem. But the Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were still Jews who hated the Samaritans, go to the land that they once opposed, they once rejected, with the good news of the gospel. So here's the question. What could possibly be the reason why someone would show the love of God to people who are persecuting him, and what would make people go to a foreign land whom they hated and hated them all to show the love of God and in, in, in spreading of the gospel? Why? I'm going to give us three. Let, let me read this first, first. Let me give you three reasons, then we'll close, okay? I don't mean to say that as if we're done, okay? So don't take it that way. I'm going to give you three reasons. Chapter 7, verse 54, go back with me. 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw, listen, the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, just in case you can't see it, because you can't, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city, stoned him. Witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of Saul And they were stoning him, and Stephen cried out in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In other words, forgive them. And when he said that, he had fallen asleep. I want to draw three principles from this text to propel the church on mission. The first is, the kingdom of God was their greatest possession. The kingdom of God was their greatest possession. Stephen, in the midst of being persecuted, looking up, standing in this cosmic courtroom, the place of full and final judgment is King Jesus. He's standing before the throne of God, awaiting Stephen's entrance. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke tells us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about The kingdom of God. Stephen sees the king in the courtroom. uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. Now look at Acts 8 right in your Bible where you're at. Verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God. The name of Jesus people were baptized. The, The disciples, the apostles, the early persecuted Christians recognized that ultimately they belonged to another kingdom. They ultimately belonged to another king, an ultimate king. They truly believed that they were exiles on this earth awaiting the sovereign reign and the sovereign rule of King Jesus. They believed that with their whole heart, that this world was not their home. This land is not their final inhabitants. Twice in Peter's letters, if you read the letter of 1 Peter, we went through that, but twice in his letter, he writes that his persecuted, suffering church And reminds them, you're exiles, you're exiles, you're exiles. Paul put it bluntly and plainly in Philippians. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate king, ushering the ultimate and eternal kingdom. There was such an allegiance to King Jesus and a recognition that there is a much greater kingdom, a greater king, that they were willing to die For the sake of the gospel, they're willing to to move out to foreign lands to a place where they're hated for the gospel. Now, let me try to illustrate this for you if I can. A, A little bit more practical. I remember someone asking me, you know, where's my family from? And and I and I said that I was an Italian American. If you didn't know that by now, I don't know what to tell you. But I was an Italian American. And they said, no, 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 no. You're an American. You're born in America. You have you have you have an Italian descent. You have Italian ancestry. That's true. I was born in America. I'm an American. But in the same way, I have been born again to a new kingdom that trumps all other kingdoms. My salvation was purchased. My election was secured way before I was born in America. I am not an American Christian. I am a Christian first. An american descent i believe that if we have a king of god a kingdom of god mindset it will help keep us from making patriotism an idol i've been thinking about that this week you see it is good and right to honor the king in our case the president even if you don't agree with them and those in authority the bible says you ought to love them and pray for them first peter first timothy can't be any more clear i urge you for supplications and prayer intercessions and, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in high positions that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. This is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And, and, and here's a thought as we contemplate our, our primary allegiance to the kingdom of God. Could it be, and I'm getting a little sidetracked here, but I, I, I want to say this. Could it be that our freedoms Has become an idol I'm not going to play Holy Spirit And tell you what that means to you You figure that out But idols can be And many times idols are Good things that turn into ultimate things Remember sin is not just breaking the commandments Five, six, and seven Don't steal, don't lie Don't commit adultery It's the first commandment Have no other God before him Sin is not just defined by doing bad things But making good things into ultimate things at the core of every human heart, there's a desire to be saved. There's a savior in all of us. that thing, that relationship, those words that say, "I'm somebody, I'm a value, I have meaning." Everyone is trying to build that identity, building a self-worth, our deepest hope, whether it's, whether it's power, whether it's approval, whether it's relationship, whether it's family, whether it's your kids, whether it's your looks, whether it's your money. Could I say, could it be the American dream? I'm a proud American. I've been out of this country and I love coming back to it. I honor those who went before me. I honor those who died so I can have the freedoms. But that's a slippery slope as well. The love of country, even the love of our freedoms must never take the place of our singular, preeminent love of Jesus. Our singular devotion and worship and obedience to our God and the advancement of his kingdom. They understood. Paul used his citizenship I'm a citizen of Rome. All right, we got to take you there. Yeah, because when I get there, I can't wait because I've been telling everybody I'm going to preach the gospel when I get there. So if my citizenship gets me there, take me. The Bible says love, honor the king. Great, slippery slope. Because our freedoms, our, our, uh, uh, our flag, our land can become for us our possession. But the kingdom of God was their greatest possession. Number two, the grace of God Come on now the grace of God was their greatest truth If you remember last week we said that Jesus is not seated at the right hand of the father He's standing everywhere in scripture. He's seated because the priests would constantly and daily give sacrifices But jesus gave a sacrifice the bible says once and for all and seated at the right hand of the father So he sat down because sacrifices were done What stephen saw and then declared to the sanhedrin religious leaders was jesus was standing he was telling them that in order to be forgiven, in order to escape judgment, in order to be reconciled to the God, to God in this courtroom is not by the law. They broke the law. It's through Jesus, the righteous one. Remember what he says? Jesus, the righteous advocate. He alone fulfilled the law perfectly, lived a perfect life. He is the God-man, therefore he can forgive because he's God. He is the man he can atone for sins. He alone is the only one. And Stephen could lay down his life Because he knew the grace of God. What reason possibly could there be that we find Stephen being busted in the head with rocks, crying out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, but for the grace of God. What the Sanhedrin could never take from him was the fact that God's grace alone, his righteous judge, secured his eternal salvation. They could not take What was most important Stephen received it by grace. He was able to look into his accuser's face and not retaliate because he knew the one thing that he needed most. That no government, no army, no religious leaders could take away from him. That is forgiveness of sin by the grace of God. What makes us different? Why are we the church, a group called not to fight back when we are persecuted? Why are we different? Is it not the gospel? Why was Stephen able to take the persecution and and condemnation with radiance in his life so that the Samaritans can live? Because he was looking at Jesus, literally. Because he was looking at the one who did not just get rejected and, and condemned and judged by earthly courts for all human evil, but it was by the Father himself. Darkness came over the cross on the hill called Calvary because Jesus, when he died for our sins, took legally, became legally guilty for our sin and was judged for that. The rod of God's wrath was upon Jesus. He endured and suffered the judgment of our sins. And that's why he cried out in desperation, in, in, in rejection, in condemnation and judgment. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father, God the Son, eternal in nature, in unity, one God. We don't completely understand this, but for that moment, the Father turned his face away. Jesus takes rejection. Jesus takes judgment. Jesus takes condemnation so that we can live. Stephen, in the face of his persecutors, with poison radiance, was able to die so that the Samaritans can live just like Jesus. I think sometimes we are so quick to talk about our rights as Americans, we forget. That Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loathes his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit the man to gain the whole word and forfeit his soul? What can man give in return for his soul? Just stuff to think about, folks. Number three and finally, the glory of God was their greatest treasure. The glory of God was the greatest treasure. Look again at verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He could love and forgive his enemies because he knew God was glorious. In fact, chapter 6, verse 15, it says that his face shone like an angel. Maybe he he got a glimpse into the glory of God at that time. I'm not sure. But here we see him seeing God's glory. And he forgives his enemies. He, Stephen, was seeing what his enemies could not see. He was seeing what his enemies could not see. He saw the glory they did not. Could it be that that moved him to forgive them? Because he knew what they were missing? Because he loved God so much. He loved God's glory so much. They did not know it. They did not see it. They did not have joy in it. He said, forgive them. Forgive them. He could see the majesty, the beauty, the incalculable worth of God, the Son of God, seated at the right hand, and they didn't understand it, and he moved in love to pray for them. Maybe sometimes when we're moved to hate those who persecute us, be bitter and resentful to those who don't know the truth of Jesus, is because we are not treasuring the glory of God above all things. Maybe it's not our highest and best end. Maybe it's not my highest and best end. That we ourselves do not have any idea of how unimaginably great, imaginably great it really is. If we see, if we were to see the glory, maybe we would pray like this. Oh Lord. Oh Lord, I want them to know what I know. I want them to experience what I experience. I want them to know the joy of knowing you. I want them to see. Oh Lord, forgive them so that they see your glory. 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you do, Eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So who do we glory in? What do you treasure the most? Health? Freedom? When Jesus in the gospel becomes more precious, more beautiful to your soul, more beautiful to your imagination, more, attracted to, more, attraction or more attractive to your heart, then your idols will be put in their place. The only way to be kingdom-minded and God-centered John Piper said, God is most glorified in us and we are most satisfied in him. I think my struggle with everything that I'm going through and and this whole political, there's a division going on in our country that division should not take place here. Jesus is not blue, he's not red, he's not left, he's not right, he will not be put in that box. We are about the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our first, and I'm not saying we should not stand up for truth. I'm not saying that we're not going to let, we're not going to stand by and let people define marriage. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we're going to say it's okay to kill your unborn. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we must be very, very careful that our allegiance is clearly seen that first and foremost is the glory of God that sinners turn from their sin and trust Jesus Christ alone. And the fact is, the reason you see the truth and you love your Bible and you recognize the truth has nothing to do with you or me. It has everything to do with the grace of God in your life. So we have to be very, very careful. I speak to myself as well. If you're persecuted as a result of confronting the world or proclaiming Christ, praise God, wait to see what happens. The church is not called to take up arms. Okay, I'm not talking about governmental officials. I was in law enforcement. I'm talking about the church is not called to take up arms. We are boldly to proclaim the gospel. When Pentecost happened, and we'll see this all through Acts, when Pentecost happened and the Spirit of God filled the people of God and they were sent on mission, it was like a vast nuclear explosion that just erupted in Jerusalem. Rippling effect throughout the whole world. Not death, but life. And as they went, everywhere they went, all their life was about. The Gospel: looking for ways to share the Gospel, looking for ways to present the Gospel, looking for ways to point people to Jesus. The very center of the followers have been reoriented by the Gospel, reoriented by the King, reoriented by the kingdom and the gospel message. Could it be, dare I say, the very freedoms that we've enjoyed that people gave their life for has been used now. For our own pleasure and our own glory. And our own kingdom. Could it be? As Americans we need to be careful. That our glory. That our satisfaction. That our treasure. Is not something of this world. Be it our land, our flags, our freedoms. Many of those things are good things. But they better not be the ultimate thing. We need to stand up. I don't say we should not. But let people know. I hope. I hope that when I leave this place. People may know my. Political bents and I have them. But I hope they know me first and foremost. As a lover of Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Not the one who wants to argue about political positions. What we should have. The good old glory days. Well, I got news the good old glory days. Has to do with slavery which is sinful. Wicked. And liberating people and changing the idea of what marriage is, is sin. So both sides have their issues. That's why Jesus don't take sides. He's the king. So we just have to be careful as God's people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing to us not only the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ... But the reality is that we have as children of God as forgiven people of God come under King Jesus. Lord, we honor those who are over us as your scriptures teach us. We submit to those who are over us. Maybe we need to pray more for those over us. We honor them. We love them. We love the land in which you've given us. We love the freedoms that we have. But, Father, we also recognize that King Jesus will come and establish his eternal kingdom. There's eternal hell awaiting for those who refuse to repent. And, Lord, you are using us as your children, as as ambassadors to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let that be first and foremost in our life. Yes, we can debate. Yes, we need to stand against falsehood yes we need to stand against lies yes we need to stand for the truth of scripture but lord let us do that in such a way that we show the grace of jesus in our life as your word says let it be seasoned with 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 grace to give an answer to those who ask let us not be rebellious jerks but loving people connecting people pointing people to king jesus we pray amen